Thank you, Michael. Uh, like Michael said, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 7, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you haven't already, uh, and we'll open by reading that passage uh, together. Well, I'll read it. You can follow along. We won't read it together. Uh, but open up to Matthew chapter 7. If, as by way of reminder, we are in a series called Reorder based on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we call it Reorder because Jesus is going to come in and just flip everything about our lives and what we thought about anything upside down in him. So he's going to continue and kind of he picks up steam in this last chapter of uh, Sermon on the Mount. He kind of doesn't hold any punches, as we'll see today. Uh, so read with me. Uh, uh, follow along as I read Matthew 7, starting in verse 1. It says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce, uh, so with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clear, see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw the pearls uh, your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is God's word. Uh, so if you've ever picked up a Bible and flipped through it, you've learned pretty quickly that the Bible can be a hard book to understand at times, right? Even with God's spirit in us leading us, sometimes it can be confusing and difficult to understand what God means in a passage. Even great men and women of the faith, full of insight and wisdom, don't always agree on an interpretation or an application of a scripture passage. And in some ways, it actually makes sense, right? If this book truly is God's word, and it is, then it shouldn't surprise us that from time to time, the depth of its wisdom and insight is beyond what our human minds and hearts can contain. So when Jesus, God in flesh, the word living among us, comes and teaches us, it shouldn't surprise us if from time to time we misunderstand what he is saying, and perhaps in no place has the teaching of Jesus been more misunderstood than his teaching for us today, judge not. Because on the surface, this passage doesn't seem too confusing, right? Jesus is telling us not to judge one another. Who are we to call out someone else's life or someone else's behavior? Make a pronouncement on standards of right and wrong in the world. Let each person live their life, follow their heart, live their truth, uh, and be their own definer of what's good. You worry about you. Let them worry about them and never impose anything on anyone else. And be sure not to commit the greatest sin our culture can say and ever tell anybody that they might be wrong. Right? This is Jesus, right? He says, judge not. This is from him. But is this what Jesus really means here? That judge not means we are never to evaluate someone's life or choices, never call someone out when they act contrary to truth or virtue, and that no one can ever do that back to us. Well, I'll argue that that can't possibly be what Jesus means here. Why? Because he commands us to do exactly the opposite in a lot of other places. Here in this very Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus makes a lot of judgment claims. He very clearly tells us what is good and what is evil and judges the hearts 
of all of us and does even more judgment when he calls out the hypocrites among us, those who showcase an outward holiness in an attempt to mask an inward selfish sinfulness. And even in our passage today, even when he says, just judge not, Jesus calls us, as you pick that up, to remove the sins and specks in one another's eyes, which requires judging one another. And in verse 6, uh, you have a lot of you have on your coffee cups about do not give dogs what is holy. I don't know. Yeah. But what about that verse? He says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. That's actually a call to godly judgment, what we would call discernment. Saying that there are dogs and pigs, and, and those are terms Jesus uses for false teachers and those encouraging sinful godlessness. And Jesus is saying, judge their teaching and their acts as evil and do not associate yourself and especially don't associate the holy name of God with them. Separate from them. Have discernment. Judge. We have even mentioned some of the harder things left in the Sermon on the Mount coming up in some sermons that we've assigned to Milt. <clears throat> where, where God tells us, look at the fruit of people's lives to judge and discern their faithfulness. And time prevents us from diving even deeper into other passages, like when Paul instructs us in uh, 1 Thessalonians to test everything and hold on to the good, or in Ephesians chapter 5, when we're called to discern or judge what is good and expose what is evil in the world. And even Galatians 6, where we're actually instructed to look at each other's lives as the church and judge them to see if they are living consistently with the gospel and to lovingly and humbly correct one another. So when Jesus says, judge not, he is clearly not saying, never evaluate or discern or stand up for truth in the world. No, that's not what he's saying here at all. So if that's not what Jesus is saying, then what is he saying when he says, judge not. Well, let's unpack it together, uh, picking up in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. So let's read those verses again together. They'll be on the screen. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounced, pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus starts this instruction of the crowd by saying, don't judge others because how you judge them will be how you are judged. But what does that mean? Well, it's true in life that in general, how we treat others gets reciprocated in how we are treated by others. So in other words, if we are short, ungracious, critical, and harsh with others, then we shouldn't be surprised when people are short, ungracious, critical, and harsh back to us. And conversely, when we are kind and patient and, and caring towards others, we often see people are willing to be kind, patient, and caring back to us. It's not a rule, but it's a fairly trustworthy principle. In general, how we treat others is how we are treated in return. But while that principle may be true in life, 
It's actually not what Jesus means here. See, the whole of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is meant for us to be transformed by the truth that our lives are lived before the watching eyes of God, both as our loving Father and as our holy judge. So when Jesus talks about the judgment and measure we will receive, he is talking about the final judgment. When our lives and all we've done are placed before God Almighty, it's the reality of what the writer of Hebrews says in this passage. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every one of us, at the end of our lives, will stand before God to give an account for how we lived. And Jesus, by saying this in Matthew 7, is reaffirming at least three realities for us. That God is real, that our lives and choices matter in the end, and that judgment is coming for all of us. And that coming judgment that we have before God, Jesus says, is connected to how we judge other people during our lives here. And he is teaching the crowds that our hearts, the source of our judgmental motivations, is what he's coming after. And so we already begin to see the deeper purpose to what Jesus means by judge not. Just like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, it always comes back to the heart. And so Jesus is saying, judge not. And he's saying, do not judge with the heart of a hypocrite. Specifically, as Jesus will show us in this passage, a hypocrite who judges others from a sense of moral superiority over them. Judging others as if we don't deserve the same judgment from God ourselves, as if our sins are somehow better than theirs. And it starts here. Don't be a hypocrite because you will be judged according to how you judged others. So I heard someone give this illustration once, kind of fleshing out the idea of how we judge each other uh, by using this fictitious example about dying and going to heaven. Let me reiterate, because this is broadcast on the internet, this is a fictitious story. This is not theologically accurate. Okay. But imagine this. Imagine you die, and you arrive at the pearly gates, and St. Peter says, why should we let you into God's heaven? He is perfectly holy, and his standard for entrance is perfect holiness. So let's look at and evaluate your life, shall we? And then Peter says, I tell you what, we won't even use God's standards, you know, the Ten Commandments, right, to evaluate how you live. No, he says, we're not going to use that uh, to subject your life. Uh, That's too high a bar of holiness, in fact. Uh, We're going to actually put your life up against something else, because something you didn't know is that for your entire life, you've had a little companion with you, a little invisible angel on your shoulder with a recorder. (laughs) And every time you judged someone, when they didn't meet your standard, not God's standard, but your own standard of how someone should live, this little angel wrote it down. Your commandments on how you expected others to live and treat you. So Peter says, we've got it here. And Take heart. Your list is way easier than God's list. So let's take a look at your life and see how well you lived up to the standards you were holding everybody else up to. Now, it's a silly story. It's a fake story. (laughs) 
But would you have made it into heaven? Mm, No. You wouldn't. And neither would I. Why? Because not only do none of us live up to God's standards, we don't even live up to our own. So Jesus is telling us that there is this incredible danger to our lives and our souls that if we look in judgment upon the world as if somehow we stand taller, we're inherently better. Judging others as someone who is less deserving of condemnation. In fact, some commentators uh, suggest a reading of judge not should actually be read condemn not. That Jesus is warning us not against the wise judgment of discernment, but a hypocritical judgment of others, condemning them before God as if we don't deserve the same condemnation. Preacher and teacher uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts of this passage in Matthew 7. So that while we say that it, the passage, does not mean the refusal to exercise any discrimination or thought or judgment, we must hasten to say that what it does warn against is the terrible danger of condemning, of pronouncing judgment in its final sense. And so to drive this point home, Jesus uses this imagery of a speck and log. So let's read together, picking back up in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus gives this serious but kind of slightly sarcastic picture here to demonstrate the danger of hypocritical condemning judgment. He says, you are very concerned with calling out and removing the speck of sin in your brother's eyes, but don't even bother to notice or deal with the log of sin in your own eye. Don't be a self-righteous hypocrite. Deal with your log before worrying about his speck. So a few things to note here. So Jesus, sorry, I meant to put the passage up. Uh, Jesus is uh, clearly making distinctions, right? between which is a bigger danger, someone else's sin or our own self-righteousness. The magnitude being like the difference between sawdust and a redwood. Jesus' biggest warnings throughout the Gospels, what he calls the biggest threat to our lives, our greatest danger is never out there, but it's always in here. It's not the sins of others, the growing opposing political party, the threats from a godless culture. Our biggest danger to our lives is always ourselves and our sin. And Jesus makes it clear throughout his whole ministry that those furthest away from trusting him, from believing the gospel, from receiving salvation, aren't the addicts, the sexually immoral, the thieves and the liars, while all those are in desperate need of forgiveness and new life, the furthest away from the kingdom, the self-righteous religious hypocrites. Those that don't receive God's grace because they don't think they need it. Those that look down on others because they think they sit higher than them. Those who are way more concerned with judging and condemning others 
over a speck of sin in their lives while ignoring the log of self, righteous sinfulness that binds and consumes them. Jesus pulls no punches and plays no games with sin, especially the sin of blind self-righteousness. It's a log compared to a speck. But that's the second thing to note. The speck and the log are where? In the eyes. Jesus references eyes uh, in sight throughout the Sermon on the Mount, using the analogy that just as healthy physical eyes lead to seeing the physical world rightly, healthy spiritual eyes are needed to see spiritual reality rightly, to be able to live rightly. And to have a heart of self-righteousness is to live blindly. We don't see God for who he truly is. We don't see the world for how it truly is. And we certainly don't see ourselves for how we truly are. And yet, there's even a more scary part. It's that deceptiveness of sin. Jesus says that we are blind without even knowing it. He says you don't even notice the log in your eye. But the good news is, Jesus gives us hope that the log can be removed. That we can see all things spiritually clearly, but we have to be, we have to be willing to acknowledge and deal with our own sin first. So what does this all mean? What does this blind hypocrisy really look like? Well, the condemning hypocrite is one that is constantly on the hunt to bring down others to point out other sins, their shortcomings, the ways they fail and fall short. It's shown, church, when we Christians circle up together like wolves, whether it's online or over coffee together or chat groups, even in Bible studies and prayer groups, to pepper with condemnation those in this world not living as good as we are. As if the reason we're saved is because we must have been just more worth saving as if we've just made better choices. We're just morally superior or that we're just more desirable by God than them. We mock their specks and we boast in our logs. And I do it. I do it way more than I think. Because I can remember the first time God smacked me over the head with this reality of my hypocritical, self-righteous, condemning judgment of others. So I grew up in the church from preschool, and I was kind of your, your traditional good church kid. In fact, in sixth grade, I went to summer camp and literally won the award at camp Most Christ-like, <laughs> which I don't know whose idea that was. Uh, clearly, their discernment was off, but then I'm like, does this mean like everybody here hates me and this is not going to go well for me? <laughs> like, because, uh, anyway. Uh, but I don't know why they had that. But anyways, I was pretty much your bubble-wrapped, kind of church, good church kid. You know, I had my, my sins and stuff, but, you know, I kind of adopted that good church kid um, identity. You know, I knew it. It was who I was. So a few of us from our youth group, high school youth group, went, all went off to college together. And I can remember being in my friend's dorm when uh, that group of us were together, and we heard the news that a couple uh, our age from back in our youth group that were dating, they had gotten pregnant. And man, we looked at each other and like eyes popped like the scandal. Can you believe it? I can't believe they were doing that. Oh my gosh. 
Well, that circle of guys had a carbonated condemnation <laughs> and judgment. I mean, it was just bubbling over. But then I'll never forget, one of my friends stopped us and said, hey, guys, you do realize that but for one evening or one bad momentary choice, that's any of us, right? And the group fell silent. Like he was right. He kicked the legs out of our self-righteous, morally superior chair, brought us back down to reality that none of us was anything apart from God's grace. And to be honest, I wonder just how many of us in that condemnation circle of guys were like actively looking at pornography online or were just constant jerks to everybody they interacted with or were like cheating on their homework and school and tests and stuff like that. But no, uh, we were uh, so condemning of that sin. And I remember in that moment, the spirit punching me in the gut and saying to me, Mike, it's all grace. Everything you have, Mike, is undeserved grace. Grace in the forgiveness that covers your sin and even grace when God allows you and moves in you to make a good choice. It's all grace. So when I think about that time and I think about my life today, I have to ask myself, who am I most prone to look out in this world with a self-righteous, condemning, hypocritical judgment? Well, one way I think could help to answer that question is how would we answer this question? Who would shock you the most to learn that God saved them? And that might key us into who we might be predisposed to looking through a condemning, self-righteous lens as if we're better than them. So I still wrestle with condemning judgment. When others don't live like I want them to, don't perform to the standard I want them to, don't seem to be doing as much as I do, or just make my life more difficult by their choices. That could those three things could describe my children, I just realized, that, that, that entire list. But I do turn into a condemning, judgmental hypocrite as if I'm inherently superior to them, not just my kids, but anybody I cast those judgments on. As if I don't still have massive sinful of my own to repent of. I strap on those log glasses looking for someone to perform splinter surgery on. And I start to lose sight of reality of who God is, how his world works, and how my life fits into it. This image of our blinding self-righteous and hypocritical judgment reminds me of a couple stories in Scripture. You might be thinking of some, of some as well. One of them is, do you remember the story of uh, King David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel? So in summary, so King David is king, uh, and he, he looks at Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, lusts after her, brings her in, and commits adultery with her, while Uriah, her husband, was away at war. And from that adultery, Bathsheba becomes pregnant, so King David, to cover his tracks, brings Uriah home from the battle in the hopes that he will sleep with his wife. But when Uriah refuses to do so, because he comes and says, my guys are still at battle. They don't get to be with their wives. I'm not going to be with my wife. Uh, David's you know, plan is failing. So he sends Uriah back to war with instructions to the leadership to ensure that he dies in battle. So to recap, <laughs> David commits adultery. He lies and he murders. So God sends the prophet Nathan to confront and rebuke David. 
But instead of coming right out to confront him, Nathan instead makes up a story and kind of asks David for advice on the matter of the story. So Nathan says, hey, hey, King David, hey, there's this rich man who's got a ton, a ton of sheep. And he had this guest come in to stay with him. Uh, but instead of killing one of his own sheep to provide for the guest, this rich man went and took the one and only sheep that this poor man had, leaving him with nothing. And Nathan says, so what should we do about that, about this rich man? And in anger, David says, man, the rich man should die. And they should pay the poor man back four times what was taken for him. And in one of the most famous lines ever spoken by a prophet, Nathan says back to David, you are the man. <laughs> the story was about you, David, and it exposed David's sinfulness that he was blind to see. Because David was more passionate about, more angered over, and seeking greater justice for the speck of this fictitious lamb thief than he was for the log of adultery and murder and lies in his own life. He was blind by his own self-centeredness. And it was shown in condemning hypocritical judgment. But by God's grace, he was given a gift of a friend like Nathan, who loved David enough to help him get that log out, to get his heart and sight back, and his life back on track with pursuing the Lord. So another example that comes to mind about self-righteous condemning judgment uh, is a story actually found in the Gospels, uh, the woman uh, caught in adultery. So uh, from John chapter 8, and uh, it's kind of a short story, so I'll flip there and read it for us. Um, but Jesus is teaching out in public. He's got a crowd around him, and while he's teaching, some scribes and Pharisees come and interrupt him. So John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst of all the crowds. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and kind of wrote on the ground with his finger. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And uh, the Greek actually says, and then he dropped the mic. And then, yeah, yeah. Be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away. One by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. You may have heard the phrase, let he without sin cast the first stone. That's where it comes from. So Jesus, full of compassion, never said this woman's sin was okay. He didn't tell the woman, you be you, live your life, you know, follow your truth. No, he said, go and sin no more. She saw her sin. Everyone saw her sin. She wasn't blind to it, no. But Jesus used that opportunity to expose the worst sin, the sin that people were blind to, 
he exposed the hearts of the hypocritical, condemning scribes and Pharisees. Listen, I want you to hear this. Church, those who may have won most Christ-like awards in the past, they were condemning a woman because she sinned differently than they did. And how often is that the root of our condemning judgment? Like the Pharisees, how often do we condemn others because they sin differently than we do? They, the scribes and the Pharisees, had hearts of self-righteousness as if they needed less saving, as if their condemning, hateful, self-exalting hearts were easier to save than hers. It was hearts of the hypocrites. So friends, Jesus is getting our attention now. He's telling us the hypocrite that he's warning against condemns others to try to prove themselves more worthy. The hypocrite is blind while telling others they need to see better. The hypocrite is more passionate about the sins of others than about repenting of their own. And hear this, the hypocrites think the problem's out there when it's really in here. Because Jesus doesn't say, judge not to keep us from being discerning or standing up for holiness and helping others walk rightly. No, he says, judge not as a command to check our hearts first, to remember our sin first, to flee self-righteous hypocrisy, a judgment not rooted in moral superiority, but in gospel humility. It's the type of view of our lives in the world that joins with the psalmist in this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a hard message, right? Why is it so hard for us, church? Well, one thing... Because who is in most danger of living in self-righteous, hypocritical condemnation? Those who call themselves God's children, citizens of his kingdom. The warning here is for us. Life is important. Your life is meaningful. That's why we take life seriously. When the king of heaven speaks to us and tells us the stakes on our life are high, we listen to what he has to say. This word is hard because it forces us to be sober-minded about our sin. The whole Sermon on the Mount is meant to wake us up, to splash us in this face with this reality that we are way worse than we think we are, that our sin is so insidiously deep within us. Our rebelling and running from God and his goodness is so burrowed down deep we need nothing short of being born again, a complete transformation, a new life, that our hearts apart from God are so ravaged by self, by sin, by anger, by lust, by greed, by cowardice, by lies and deceit, that there is no way we could ever look upon anyone else with any form of condemnation. It's the realization that it took no less blood from Jesus to save me than it took to save anybody else. It's the truth that my life was no easier to redeem by my Savior than anyone else, and it's that my salvation story 
is no less a miracle by the power of God Almighty at work in this dark world than it would be for Jesus to redeem the worst person I could think of. But it's not just a hard word, friends. Hear this. It is a good word. Because it's only when I'm truly sobered by my sin, only when I'm broken under the weight of my own need for forgiveness and mercy and redemption, it's only when I'm at the end of myself that will I surrender to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. To see that Jesus who looks upon me and looks upon you and our sin and hypocrisy while still saying to us, I want you. I want you enough that I will die to make you mine. And while it's true that we are way worse than we think we are, the cross reminds us that we are way more loved than we could ever imagine. Jesus was willing to take our place on the cross, to take our sin and shame, to take our deserved judgment on himself in our place because we are not only in desperate need of grace, we are desperately loved by God. So in our passage today in Matthew 7, Jesus is telling us our lives matter because God is taking note and account and we will be judged before him one day. And that is true for everyone. All our lives, every word, every action, every thought, every motive will be held to account before God. The only question for us in that moment of final judgment is, where is your hope? Do you hope to withstand the judgment on your own, that your life in itself alone is worthy of an audience with God, an entrance into his kingdom, that you've lived a good enough life, done enough, accomplished enough, suffered enough, given enough, just that you've been enough? Are you enough? Now remember, we've established you don't live up to your own standards let alone God's. How do you hope to live up to his? Or is your hope somewhere infinitely more secure that you are not enough, but Jesus is? That the judgment for your sin, your hypocrisy, your self-righteousness has already been paid for and dealt with by Jesus on the cross in your place. So that when you stand before God, you'll no longer stand in your sins, but you stand wearing the perfect righteousness of Christ. That you didn't live up to God's standards, but Jesus did for you. And he trades with you, takes your record of sin to himself, gives you his record of perfect holiness. So that now your hope has a name because your hope has suffered and died and was judged for you already, and your hope rose again, victorious over sin and death as far as the curse is found. But friends, the only way to be sure of having that hope in that day is that you've submitted and surrendered to that hope today. Now, if you've been living in the condemnation of your own sin, the guilt and shame and unworthiness, give your sin and shame to Jesus that it's paid for on the cross in full and let his resurrection be your new life today. In church, if you've been living in condemnation of others, a hypocritical, judgmental heart of self-righteousness, repent. 
Let God's forgiveness and mercy and grace pour over you. Confess your sin. Turn to walk in obedience. And let the power of his resurrection remind you that God is still working in you and making you more like his son Jesus. You can ask God for a heart of mercy towards others today. Because, friends, for followers of Jesus, those that claim to be citizens of his kingdom, those who have been transformed by his grace and forgiveness, when we're asked the question, who would shock you the most to learn that God saved them? We can only answer, me. Of all the people that ever lived, I'm constantly amazed that God would save a sinner like me. But he did because he loves me and he loves you. So we're going to close our time a little bit different than we normally do. Instead of uh, praying and then singing a song together, we're actually going to dim the lights and then I'm going to have a song actually play for us. I'm going to put the words on the screen and it's a Ross, it's a Ross King song. Uh, if you were here a couple Christmases ago, Ross came out for a concert for us. But uh, in this song, I actually took the title of the sermon from this song called As Much For Me. And you'll see in this song Ross's heart as he wrestles through the truth of Matthew 7, his own hypocritical condemnation, and the power of the cross. And he talks about the hill Calvary. That's another name for the cross or the hill where Jesus died and took the cross. And you'll see how Jesus changes everything about how we view others, whether we view them in condemnation or we view them through the lens of the grace of the gospel. So listen to the song, or you can read along together, but let God's Spirit work in you, and, and when the song's over, I'll come back to pray for us and dismiss us. So uh, listen to this song together. As much for me as for the murderers and thieves who kill and steal without remorse. And for the ones who claim convenience and shrug and choose abortion and divorce. As much for me as for the hypocrites who preach the word of God for the weak. And for the self-proclaimed messiahs who mislead the lost with every word they speak. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they have done, where they deserve to go. And me, I sit here and consider this as if the truth did not apply to me at all. But grace is as much for me as for anyone. Look at all I've done. I praise you for Calvary, where you took away my sin, just like every one of them. So how could I condemn? How could I condemn when it's as much for me as for the racist ones who justify philosophy of hate? And for the poor, I 
not. God's word tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all grace. It's all grace. So I, I want to ask you, if you have never truly given yourself over to the reality and the truth of that story, if you've never trusted in Jesus and surrendered to the one who took that hill of Calvary for your sin, today can be the day that you believe that forgiveness and new life starts. But believers, church in here, if you are someone that says, I do believe, I've been remade by that grace, let's take that grace in us and go pour that grace out into a world that so desperately needs to see the love of Jesus. They've seen the judgment of the church. They've seen the harshness of the church. What they need to see is the people who have been transformed 
by the grace and extend the same grace to a world that Jesus extended to us. Let's pray. Father God, I'm convinced that the power of the gospel, that grace can change everything. And Lord, it changes us, but Lord, it also can change how we interact and love and care for the world around us. Give us wisdom and discernment in how we judge and evaluate the world around us, but Lord, give us broken hearts of grace and mercy to reach out to a world not in hearts of condemning hypocrisy, but in gospel-saturated love and mercy. And Lord, move through us that our light would so shine among men that they would see our lives and praise our Father in heaven, the very Father that saved us by his grace. And it's in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.